Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Hey, it's a great day to be alive. I hope the sun is shining wherever you are, and you're enjoying the hell out of your waking hours today. You know, it occurred to me earlier this morning that when I say it's a great day to be alive, it's like the grown-up version of Mr. Rogers telling his pre-K audience that it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Basically, it's just a reassurance that everything is going to be okay. I'm going to put on my cardigan. I'm going to put on my boat shoes. You're going to sit back and we're going to have a good time together. And that's what's happening here. What are we, if not just a bunch of grown-up kids looking for reassurance and maybe a nap and a sippy cup at the end of the day, wink, wink. But you know what? It is a beautiful day and it's all going to be okay. Life's going to work out one way or the other. And it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. But what if, folks, what if, what if the stress in our lives and the noise in our head is actually caused by that neighborhood, the neighborhood where we spend our lives? And by neighborhood, I mean civilization, technology, and progress, i.e. the entire environment in which we live our lives. What if these things that we've always taken as self-evident positives, assets, and or blessings, what if these things don't actually serve to make us happy? What if, just hypothetically, there was a better way for humans to live, like among a tribe, sharing the fruits of our labors and the bounty among the group instead of among the individual? What if that focus on the individual actually makes us less happy, even when we as individuals achieve more? That's the essential theory, and those are the questions raised by today's guest, Christopher Ryan, PhD, author of the new book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh God, Paul's got another socialist on this week. And that's probably the case. Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing he's card carrying, but just stop for a second and just listen to his ideas. They are definitely radical in the sense that they question the fundamental fabric of modern society. And by modern, I don't just mean like the age of social media. I mean like twice the span of recorded history. So consider what if like by historical accident, what if a dozen or so millennia ago, we screwed the pooch by trading the Garden of Eden for Green Acres and then the Great America Mall and in the process just ruined any chance we had at happiness. What if? Now, as a reminder, I'm a capitalist, by which I mean I believe that the individual has the rights to benefit from the work that he does. But if Chris Ryan is right about our human nature and our ancient wiring, all the individual striving and accomplishment in the world isn't going to silent those barking dogs in our head because the safety and belongingness that we yearn for was lost when we stopped living as tribes who could trust each other and know that somebody else had their back 24-7 and we started living as individuals or even smaller individual groups. Am I the only one who yearns for this kind of reassurance and belongingness? Nah, can't be. Can't be. We all do, right? That's why you're listening. Otherwise, it's not just because you're stuck in traffic, right? It's Anyway, okay, look, I'll admit I was skeptical reading his book. And while reading it, I kept thinking, I love a skeptical curmudgeon as much as the next guy, but I wonder if Chris is getting enough fiber in his diet. You know, like there's probably something more going on here than just an intellectual exercise. But when you hear our conversation, 
I think you'll come to believe that he's not a curmudgeon. Chris is an interesting, happy, relatively optimistic dude who is looking for life's secrets. And maybe, just maybe, by poking the sacred cow, he's really onto something. At the very least, I think you'll find this conversation interesting and thought-provoking. Okay, Christopher Ryan's PhD's first book, Sex at Dawn, which he co-authored with his wife, Casilda Jetta, MD, was translated into 18 languages and spent several weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. His TED Talk has been viewed over 2.5 million times, and his work has been reviewed or discussed on HBO, MSNBC, Fox News even, CNN, NPR, The New York Times, The Times of London, The Washington Post, and now finally on Crazy Money. What I'm saying is he's got some ideas that are at least worthy of your consideration. I hope you'll check it out because at the very least, it's an interesting conversation. Ladies and fellas, this is Christopher Ryan. It just doesn't make any sense. And then he goes through and says, oh, there are more tennis rackets and mango slicers <laughs> and nanoparticles. And it's just like, what is this guy talking about? There are more iPads. There are more supersonic airplanes. There are more missiles. There, Yes, there are. But those things don't necessarily equate to quality of life. My name is Paul Ollinger. I'm a stand-up comedian with a background in the corporate world. I hit the lottery when I worked at a small company called Facebook. I'm fascinated with money, why we're so obsessed with it, and how it makes us happy or not. Welcome to Crazy Money. Christopher, a.k.a. Chris Ryan, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you. Glad to be here. Chris, you came to my attention because a friend of mine forwarded an article from Wired a week or two ago, and the title of the article was provocatively worded, Why Are Rich People So Mean? And because this, <laughs> this podcast explores the relationship between money and happiness and fulfillment and all that kind of good stuff, it caught my attention. But the article is only one chapter of a much larger thesis of your new book, Civilized to Death. Can you give me a brief explanation of your book's thesis, please? The basic thesis is that civilization has not been anywhere near as beneficial for the average human being as we've been led to believe. And the corollary to that is that life before civilization was nowhere near as bad as we've been led to believe. Uh, Hobbes's famous line that life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short is wrong in every element. So I wanted to examine what life was like before civilization and unpack some of the propaganda that we've heard about nature, red in tooth and claw and all that sort of nonsense, and then hold that up against what life is like today and hopefully provide people with a greater understanding for where a lot of the discontent with modern life comes from. I think people blame themselves for a lot of that and see their discontent or their sadness or anxiety as some sort of a personal failing. Whereas from my perspective, it's quite clear that uh, most of our suffering is a response to a world that we're not adapted to. So let's define some terms here. What do you mean by civilization? By civilization, I'm referring to the way of life that arose shortly after our species started to grow food and domesticated animals and live in settled villages uh, and so on with uh, hierarchical political systems and uh, armies and all the rest of the, the sort of suite of characteristics that came along with agriculture. 
It's important to understand that Homo sapiens, like us, anatomically modern Homo sapiens, have existed, uh, the latest estimates are around 300,000 years. And agriculture only arose roughly 10,000 years ago at the earliest. So we're looking at, if you're looking at our species, well over 95% of our time has been spent in immediate return hunter-gatherer groups that were nomadic, egalitarian, women had equal status to men, resources were shared, and so on. Highly cooperative, interdependent groups of people where everyone knew each other. And so this large-scale, anonymous, scarcity-based societies that we live in today are very recent developments and in many ways are deeply in, in conflict with our nature as animals. So at some point 10,000 years ago, choices we made in the aggregate to settle down, as it were, fucked up what was a pretty good way of living prior to that. But modern civilization doesn't consider pre-farming, pre-agricultural life as being civilized or worth living at all. Right. Basically, all societies are self-congratulatory, right? All, all <laughs> systems want to believe that they got it right. So if you go to Texas, people tell you Texas is the best place in the world. Goddamn go, right they do. <laughs> with those silly hats and boots and the rest of it. If you go to France, you'll hear the same thing or, or Australia or wherever it is. And I think that we tend to do the same thing in terms of historical epochs, right? We, we all think we live in the best possible time. It's a strange sort of temporal patriotism that uh, we're susceptible to. So I think it's important to step outside of that tendency when possible and to try to get a more objective sense of quality of life. Joseph Campbell referred to a process of detribalization, which is uh, first recognizing that you are in a tribe and that that tribe has certain ways of looking at things and doing things. And if you can, if you have the opportunity in your life, it's illuminating and educational to be able to step outside of that tribe and look back at it and see it, see that approach to life as an enclosed self-referential system. That's why travel is so enlightening and broadening of the mind because you get to see like, oh, where the way I do things and my friends do things, that's just one approach. There are many other ways. I would say psychedelics are another very powerful tool in stepping outside of one's personal perspective and seeing reality in a broader context. And so that's what I was trying to do in this book is say, okay, the propaganda we hear is that life was terrible before civilization. Civilization has been this incredible gift, the pinnacle of human achievement. And yet people are miserable. So many people are miserable. There was a Louis C.K. bit that you probably saw where he talks about being on airplanes and how we take everything for granted so quickly. You know, we should be sitting in, in an airplane just going, ah, the whole flight. It's we're, we're in a chair in the sky. It's incredible. But instead, we're complaining that the seat doesn't recline enough and we don't get peanuts or whatever. So I wanted to examine that. If life is so great now, if things have been getting better and better and better for the last 10,000 years, why are we not all just ecstatic all the time? 
Before we examine where we are today, let's go back and examine these pre-civilized people, our ancestors, and examine whether or not Hobbes was actually right. Okay, so if we believe Hobbes, or if we hold on to the modern view of pre-civilized people, by the way, what do you call them? Because I don't want to say aborigines or whatever I want to say. I want to say the proper term. Yeah, well, I, I interchange between foragers and hunter-gatherers. Okay, so these foraging forebearers of ours, if Hobbes was right, they lived in the mud and barely scraped out a living. They died at a young age, their teeth fell out, and they were savages. Is this true or false? Oh, it's false on, on every count. Hunter-gatherers have better health than agriculturalists do. We see this in the skeletons of people who live just before agriculture compared to those who live just after agriculture. Within just a couple of generations, our ancestors went from uh, an average among men of being about 5'10 to being about 5'4. So their physical stature declined. We see in their teeth indications of famine and nutrient deficiencies we see uh, famine indicated in their bones, and there are technical ways, if we can get into this if you're interested, but there are ways that you can look at skeletons and see what people ate, uh, how varied the diet was, if there were extended periods of famine or not. And on every count, farmers score much lower than hunter-gatherers do. So dietary health definitely uh, declined in terms of how much leisure time versus work time, so quality of life issues, massive decline. Violence, massive increase. Uh, pretty much any metric you want to look at, life after agriculture was significantly worse for people than life before agriculture. Why? What happened? What are the elements that go into the way they live that made it worse? Well, all sorts of things happened. Politically, in terms of family structure, an important thing that happened is that uh, babies could be weaned off breast milk much earlier um, because we had domesticated animals now. So women were suddenly having far more babies than they had before. And because when a woman's breastfeeding, especially a hunter-gatherer woman who has a low body fat, uh, she won't ovulate as long as she's breastfeeding. That's sort of a natural birth control system that's built into our biology. But once you have people settled in villages and the babies can be switched over to animal milk, women will get pregnant again. And also women's status was so low that they really had no choice. They became basically breeding material like livestock uh, that are owned by men. Whereas in hunter-gatherer groups, women are autonomous and make their own decisions, breastfeed for up to four years on average. And um, so you have population increasing very quickly. You have women's status relative to men drop immensely. Uh, you have much more disease because most of the major diseases that have killed human beings are pathogens that have jumped over from domesticated animals. All the fever, swine fever, the influenza that came over from uh, pigs. You have chicken pox, smallpox. These things came over from ducks and chickens. You have uh, tuberculosis. That came over from cattle. So then you have all the sort of sewage-related illnesses, cholera, diphtheria, that were a result of us living in these settlements in which people were defecating in the streets along with the animals. Delightful. So you're in a filthy environment, 
which uh, supports, and also the population density, the diseases spread really quickly between people. So all these problems come about when people settled down and started growing their own food rather than wandering nomadically and gathering food. So if I pointed to medicine and antibiotics as an improvement, you'd just say, well, had we never started farming, we wouldn't even need those things. So what's the point? Right. It's like saying, uh, you know, thank God we have airbags and seatbelts because our ancestors all died in auto accidents. Like, no, there were no cars. So it's sort of a non-issue. Tell me about the relationship between an agrarian or agricultural lifestyle and materialism. Well, I guess the first point to make there is that our hunter-gatherer ancestors had very few personal possessions. And again, 95 or more percent of our time as a species was spent as hunter-gatherers. So these are very deep and important characteristics that are universal among hunter-gatherers all over the world. So we know that they pertain to our ancestors as well. And when you have no personal possessions, sharing is essential. Our species evolved and survived through interdependence and cooperation. That's what we do better than any other species, arguably, on the planet. Uh, we're very good at taking care of each other, monitoring any sort of uh, selfishness or antisocial behavior. We're terrified of being expelled from a group. Uh, one of the most painful things that can happen is to get kicked out of some organization or, or circle of friendship that, that's important to a person. The worst punishment that we inflict on criminals is solitary confinement. Uh, we're a hyper-social species. And so when you're moving all the time, uh, hunter-gatherers move on average eight kilometers a day, you don't want to carry things. And so it just makes more sense to share things. If we need a cooking pot and you know, we need some uh, hammocks or whatever it is, we share those things rather than everyone carrying their own. It's just a practical consideration. And so I know people listening to this might think, ah, oh, he's this Rousseauian guy saying hunter-gatherer life was so perfect and they were noble savages and all that. I'm not saying anyone was a noble savage. Sharing and cooperation simply made sense uh, for our ancestors. And that's why they're so important to us still today. However, today we live in a world that's telling us, that's constantly trying to teach us to go against those instincts and those evolved tendencies. It's telling us uh, the world is full of scarcity and you need to get yours and hoard it and protect it and don't share it. And, but the piece in Wired that you referred to earlier in that part of the book, I'm I was trying to explain how painful that is for people on both ends of the scale, not just the people who are without, but the people who have too much. Both ends of that scale are, are very difficult for our species to wrap our heads around. I want to have a directed conversation about that piece and the chapter in the book that is actually excerpted from in a minute, but I want to talk about how we got there first, right? So you say that modern society's rational self-interest run amok. What happened to selfish tribe members in ancient times? By the way, I appreciate how you keep pulling me back to focus. This is really good. You should, you should edit my next I'm a pro, damn it. <laughs> Bring it on. Because I tend to wander off, you know. <laughs> my, my podcast is called Tangentially Speaking. I love it. That's, that's why. So what happened? Because your premise is, is 
very solid. Selfishness is part of our species. It's part of every, I, I would say probably every mammal has deeply selfish uh, impulses because selfishness is tied to survival on a very elemental level. But cooperation is tied to survival on a um, social group level. So what happens in hunter-gatherer societies is the selfishness arises and there are social mechanisms for mitigating and eliminating it. So first of all, children obviously are taught that sharing is essential, even as children are today, right? If you didn't bring enough candy for everyone, you know, you can't have your candy in school. These things are still taught to children until you get to business school. When hey, hey now, wait a second. <laughs> this know. school is all about collaboration and working as a team, but we'll talk about that offline. Sure, to, yeah, to eliminate the others. <laughs> uh, uh, but anyway, the, the point is that uh, you have, uh, in, you know, sort of education of children. In adults, if someone starts to show some selfishness and uh, antisocial behavior, the first stage is joking. So you'll see ridicule. And this has all been documented by anthropologists, uh, how the hunter-gatherers deal with any sort of selfishness that arises in the group. But also it's often directed against the anthropologists because the anthropologists who show up to live with a hunter-gatherer group and study them bring their selfish impulses with them. And it confuses the hunter-gatherers often because they've never seen anyone behave like that. You show up with, you know, six months worth of chocolate bars and you want to hide them in your trunk, in your tent, and you don't want to share them with anyone. That's sort of incomprehensible to them. Mm -hmm. So often the jokes are directed at the anthropologist. There's a an example of uh, a man who lived in Africa, I think, with the... Um, the Kung San people in Botswana. And toward the end of his stay there, he wanted to sort of have a feast to thank the, the group for allowing him to stay there and sharing their lives with him. And so he spent a lot of time going around and trying to find the, the biggest, fattest cow he could find that they would then uh, uh, kill and cook for this feast. And he finally found this cow and he brought it back. He was really proud. He put so much time and effort into this and they were cooking the cow. And as they slaughtered the cow and they're cooking it, the men from the group kept talking about how he'd been ripped off and they pay way too much for this skinny old cow. And, you know, if they'd known that he was going to just get this, this ridiculous skinny cow, they would have told him where to go to find a good one and, and just he was heartbroken. He, he like he thought he had done a great job and they just kept ridiculing him. And finally, one of the younger guys in the tribe took him aside because he saw how crestfallen he was. And he said, hey, don't take this seriously. This is our way. They don't mean that. They're keeping you from getting a big head mm. because when someone gets a big head, eventually someone will die. And so there's this sort of leveling. There are lots of these leveling mechanisms. Ridicule is the first stage. So it's like Twitter kind of. <laughs> yeah. Although I don't know, we've got 
lots of examples of people with huge heads that seem to be pretty successful on Twitter. Yeah, so. well, it all depends what your goals are. But so, okay, but as, yeah. a, as a tool for, for maintaining the social norms, ridicule was used to moderate people's egos because ego had to be subservient to the survival of the tribe. Right. Then you have, if that doesn't work, you've got someone in a position of authority would take you aside and sit you down and have a little chat with you. And if that doesn't work, it's important to remember that virtually everyone in a hunter-gatherer group is armed and deadly. So it doesn't matter how big you are or loud you are or whatever, you can get an arrow in the back at any time from any direction. Or you can just be expelled from the group. And that's essentially a death sentence. So there are different stages, but, you know, right up to being, you know, having a hunting accident, being pushed off a cliff or into a river. It can happen and is documented in hunter-gatherer groups. So, yeah, there's, there's very little tolerance for uh, someone who thinks he or she is better than everyone else and deserves more than everyone else. And in fact, in terms of politics, it's interesting to note that if someone shows any desire to be considered a leader, they are considered to be ridiculous and pathetic and immediately disqualified from any position of leadership. So leaders are not people who present themselves and say, you know, I want your support, I'm going to be the leader. They're people who others uh, revere for their wisdom, their level-headedness, their generosity. So leaders tend to have even less than average people because they're the most generous. It's totally the opposite of the way we tend to do things today. Okay, so you mentioned how when an anthropologist comes into a tribe that the way they behave there among the people is ridiculed or the differences are noticed. Let's say it went the other way. Let's say a typical American household was visited by an ancient forager. What would, or someone just thinking with the eyes of a forager, what would shock our visitor most? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Uh, in fact, uh, I write about a situation quite similar to this in Civilized to Death, where a documentary filmmaker named Johnny Hughes was working with the BBC doing a documentary in Papua New Guinea. I think he lived with, uh, I think they were called the Insect Tribe for a month or two. They had translators. And uh, at one point, some of the men from the tribe said, hey, you've, you've been here for a while and we like you are you going to invite us to visit your home? And so when he got back to London, he sat down with the folks at the BBC and proposed this, and they agreed to to fund it. First, he went and spoke to some anthropologists because he was afraid that when these guys came to London, they would never want to go back to the jungle. And the anthropologists laughed and said, yeah, don't worry about that. That's That's not going to happen. So they did. They flew these guys in. I think there were three of them. And they spent a month or so living in London and, and around there. And uh, yeah, there's, he tells this story of how they were sitting at breakfast one morning at a producer's house where they were staying. And the producer, it was still dark. It was really early. And the producer was like, okay, got to go to work. See you, see you tonight. And one of them said, man, why do you leave? You leave every day before the sun comes up and you come home when the sun's down. What are you doing all day? And you're not with your family. And he said, well, I'm working. 
said, why? And he said, well, I have to pay for this house. And the guy said, well, how many days do you have to work to pay for the house? And he said, 30 years. And they just, they were shocked. They were amazed. They said, when I want a house, my friends and I get together and we make a house in a week or so. Like, you work for 30 years for this? So I think one of the things that they would be amazed by is the poverty of our lives through their eyes. They're not going to be impressed by possessions very much because they don't recognize the value of possessions. They recognize the value of free time, of hanging out with people you want to be with, of doing what you want to do. Again, I return to the phrase fiercely egalitarian. Hunter-gatherers don't tell each other what to do, not even children. So this idea of having a boss and doing what you're told, this sort of slavery mentality that's ubiquitous in the modern world would be shocking and humiliating from a forager's perspective. Are you suggesting that homo sapiens were not meant to spend 10 hours a day in a cubicle under fluorescent lighting? I think that's a safe assumption, yeah, which is why it drives us crazy, which is why it kills the spirit. We have domesticated ourselves, and we suffer from it every bit as much as chickens in cages and uh, other domesticated animals. It's it's an essentially an inhuman way to live. Another example uh, and another thing that I think would be shocking to a hunter-gatherer and, and relates to your, your focus in this interview is there's a case of um, some Indians from Brazil who were brought to France in, uh, I guess, in the 1600s because Montaigne was there and they were brought to visit the king and the queen and shown around Paris. And, and Montaigne had a chance to speak with them and he asked them this question that you, you just asked me, what is most uh, shocking or impressive to you about European civilization. And the thing that they pointed to was they said, we don't understand how some people have so much and live in these big houses and other people sleep in the street outside their doorway. We don't understand how that's possible. And we don't understand why the people in the street don't burn down the houses. So the inequality the vast wealth inequality would be shocking to foragers. And that never would have happened in pre-civilized time because everybody had to contribute and you couldn't, you couldn't hoard because you said something about the best savings plan for, to ensure being able to eat in the future is, is what? Well, the, the expression you're probably thinking of is the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. <laughs> Meaning? Meaning hunter-gatherers, by definition, don't have accumulated resources, right? They don't have refrigeration. They're, they're not smoking uh, food. And there are uh, pre-agricultural people who do have accumulated resources. They're referred to as complex hunter-gatherers by anthropologists. So that would be uh, people uh, like the Tinglet or the Haida in the Pacific Northwest who had um, massive salmon runs, and so they would harvest the salmon and then smoke them and preserve them. And what you find in those societies is that they replicate agricultural societies. 
they they have hierarchies. They're very warlike and expansionist. They have slavery and uh, women's status is reduced. So it's not agriculture per se that triggers these changes so much as it's the presence of accumulated resources that creates the hierarchies and all, all this stuff. So the people we're talking about, our ancestors who were immediate return hunter-gatherers, had no accumulated resources. So wealth differentials make no sense because there is no wealth per se. And yet, ironically, hunter-gatherers live as if they're wealthy because the world around them is full of everything they need. So their approach to life is kind of like you had uh, a credit card with no limit that you could use anywhere, anytime, and never even have to worry about it. Everything becomes free. Uh, that's how the world looks to a hunter-gatherer. So that inf- informs their religious sensibility, their spiritual sensibility. Um, hunter-gatherer gods and spirits are seen as generous and uh, beneficent and nurturing, and they take care of us. When you have the shift to agriculture, then you get the jealous, capricious, vicious gods of the Old Testament. So, so do you think, speaking of, of the Old Testament, is, is this the Garden of Eden, this pre-civilized life you speak of? Yeah, I think it's, it's quite clear that this persistent myth of the Garden of Eden and Paradise Lost is a sort of a racial memory, uh, as Jung would call it, or a collective unconscious uh, memory of when we lived in the proper environment. You know, any animal is going to be happiest living in the environment in which it evolved, right? Which is makes sense. It's so obvious. Uh, you know, a fish is going to be happiest in the water, right? Uh, presumably. <laughs> yeah. Presumably. It's right? a wild conjecture here, Chris. Exactly. So what is the natural environment for human beings? It sure as hell isn't this. It isn't cubicles and fluorescent lights and somebody telling you to do meaningless work with most of your waking hours and, you know, go home and stare into a box the other hours. And, you know, these things aren't aren't congruent with our nature. So, you know, hunter-gatherers, on average, work about 20 hours per week. That word work generally doesn't even translate into hunter-gatherer languages. When anthropologists try to investigate work in hunter-gatherer societies, it's a problem because there's no word for work. Why would you do something you don't want to do? It doesn't make sense. So the things that they're doing that anthropologists call work when they do these tabulations are things like fishing, hunting, uh, walking around, picking berries. These are things we do in our leisure time. <laughs> right. I work my ass off so that I have time to do that stuff, Chris. Exactly. I pay a exactly. lot of money to go to places that don't have buildings so I can do that kind of stuff. And there's a reason that, that you pay for that. There's a reason you're, you're willing to pay for that. There's a reason it feels good. It feels good because it's congruent with your nature. Even golf courses. Why do men and women like to walk around on a golf course? It's because it replicates the ancestral environment of the African savanna. The water, the sand, the undulating hills. There's a deep resonance with these things. I spend a lot of my time living in a sprinter van, traveling around the U.S. doing my podcast, and I call it a vanthropology tour. I've done three of them now. 
you know, every time I've made the mistake, I take a whole bunch of books, I load up my laptop with movies and TV shows I'm going to catch up on. And then I'm five months on the road and I haven't looked at a single movie. I've read about one book because at night I'm looking into a fire or I'm looking at the stars or I'm having conversations with my friends or listening to them play music or I'm doing these deeply human things that are so much more satisfying than the diversions of sort of, you know, my typical life at home in a box. That's pretty radical stuff. Clearly, clearly you're living life off the grid and people would say you're crazy to be doing it. And yet it sounds like it makes a whole lot of sense. Well, it feels good. You yeah. know, and that, yeah. that's what I'm, I'm getting to. It's someone will say, oh, I wish I could do that. You know, you're so brave, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm totally self-indulgent. <laughs> this this feels better. Right, right. Uh, I'm not sacrificing anything. Let me ask you about some people that have a different point of view on the matter. Steven Pinker, Richard Dawkins, and Paul McCartney all say the world is getting better. Why are they wrong? <laughs> Paul McCartney? Well, he said it a while ago. It was on Sgt. <laughs> Pepper's. <laughs> it's getting better all the time. My biggest problem yeah. as a creative person is my Gen X references that are stuck clearly in 19, you know, 68 or 80, I'm, 81. I'm right there with you, brother. You, you said Johnny Hughes earlier. I thought you were talking about the Breakfast Club. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, Paul McCartney also said all you need is love, right? Sure. So who knows? Yeah, Pinker, Dawkins, uh, Matt Ridley are the sort of the three horsemen of the the neo-Hobbesian perspective. And I think I don't want to get into, um, you know, motivations for why people believe certain things. But I think that, you know, I, I spend some time in Civilized to Death sort of looking at their arguments, looking at their data and from my perspective, it's incredibly uh, hollow. You know, Matt Ridley, for example, begins, he has a book called The Rational Optimist, which is a 300 and some page uh, argument in favor of the idea that, yes, this is the best time to ever have been alive. And things are just getting better and better and better. And anyone who doesn't agree is uh, ridiculous. And he sort of says at the beginning, there's there's this flourish where he says, look, you know, we have gone from a species of maybe 10 million people 50,000 years ago to almost whatever it is now, 7 billion people. That's so much progress. And I'm thinking, why is that progress? How is more members of your species progress? There are more chickens now than there ever were in the past. Chickens' quality of life isn't better. There's no logical reason to say that it's better to have 7 billion of us than 1 billion or 500 million. In fact, the logic goes the opposite way, because the more of us there are, the fewer resources there are for each of us. The more damage we do to the ecosystems, the, you know, the more the fishery is collapsing, the more pollution we're creating. It just doesn't make any sense. And then he goes through and says, ah, oh, there are more tennis rackets and mango slicers <laughs> and nanoparticles. And it's just like, what is this guy talking about? Mango slicers are a, an indication of quality of life. I don't even know. So it's it's kind of insane when you look at the substance of the arguments that are being made to make this point, which they think is obvious that life is so much better. The problem is 
that if you choose the metrics of modernity, then of course life is better. There are more iPads, there are more supersonic airplanes, there are more missiles. There, Yes, there are. But those things don't necessarily equate to quality of life. I actually wrote down this quote, but if you value community, personal autonomy, and meaningful existence more than dollars, soap operas, and megahertz, you may come to a different conclusion, i.e. that that things aren't as good as we think they are today. So as I'm reading this, a, a few things came to mind. So maybe what Pinker and Dawkins and McCartney are talking about is things are better today than they were in, say, 1400, not better than they were 10,000 years ago. Well, that's one thing, yeah. And that's a trick that they often, those people making those arguments will often use that trick. They'll say, well, you know, people were dying from smallpox, you know, or the Great Plague. and Right. Like, okay, but that doesn't pertain to hunter-gatherers, as we established earlier. But it's almost like, okay, so we can't turn back the clock. So what do you recommend? What do you prescribe to our human condition at this point? Well, I think that, you know, there's the the line I quote from um, T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets, where he says, we shall not cease our explorations, and the end of all our exploring will be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. For the first time. Yeah. So I think I agree with you. We're not going to turn back the clock. We're not going to, um, I hope, find ourselves in some sort of a Mad Max post-apocalyptic. <laughs> I'm screwed in that in that scenario, by the way. I don't know how to skin a buck or run a trot line, as uh, Hank Williams Jr. would, would yeah. suggest. I need well, to you'd, l- you'd learn pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. suppose I would, or I would perish. Yeah. As I actually have a joke about that in this post-apocalyptic Mad Max world. I am... Uh, I'm Mad Max's girlfriend because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I what I don't understand about the Mad Max world is where do they get all the gasoline? I don't know. Somebody's got it, and they're fighting like hell to keep it. But so I don't yeah. want to take you off your point. Please continue. Yeah. But my point is that you know, again, going back to Joseph Campbell and the the hero's journey, and and the fact that every society in the world seems to have essentially the same origin myth, which is that some young person from the group goes out into the world and, you know, think of Homer's Odyssey, has adventures and challenges and nearly dies and learns all sorts of important things. And then at the end of the story, they return home with this knowledge that they've gained through their adventures. And it fucks it up for everybody. (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, my, my reading of it is a little more hopeful in that they come back with an appreciation for the place that they left initially. Right. And so that's what I'm trying to do and what I, I think a lot of other people are trying to do right now in terms of paleo diet and, you know, paleo movement and paleo medicine, Darwinian medicine, and a lot of sciences and sort of wellness people who are interested in human wellness, they're understanding that in order to find the best path into the future, we really need to have a a deepened appreciation and understanding of the past. And, you know, the model that that I use in the book is I say, we're going to live in a zoo. There's no way around that. We're living in artificial environment that we are creating every day. We build buildings, we design cities, you know, we choose the environment in which we're going to live and we shape it and create it and maintain it. So why not 
make these decisions with an understanding of the natural environment of our species so that we can live in the San Diego Zoo rather than the <laughs> Calcutta Zoo. I go to zoos today and I remember the zoos I went to when I was a kid. And suffice to say, we've learned to make better zoos for animals. That's for certain. Right. And it's better for everyone. The animals live longer. We, their behavior is replicated in more natural ways. Why can we do that for chimpanzees in San Diego, but not for ourselves? So what does that mean? We divide up into 120-person teams and live in kibbutzim? Uh, maybe. It means that people have much more freedom to work things out the way that, that works for them. For example, I don't have kids. I'm 57 years old. I'm never going to have kids, but I love kids. I like kids. I wish there were more kids around that I could hang out with and learn from and teach and love and be loved by. And I know that I've got friends who are parents who are overwhelmed by their kids, overwhelmed by the responsibility and the time commitment. This summer on this van trip, I was lucky enough to be invited to come and spend time with a, a, a man and his wife and their three sons who are living off grid in Idaho, up on a mountaintop. And, and he and his wife hadn't been alone for, he couldn't remember when. So it was great to be able to say, you guys take off, let us hang out with the kids, you know? That, I wasn't doing them a favor. I liked those kids. That was fun. It's just not natural for a parent to have to deal with all that responsibility uh, themselves. <laughs> That's not how we evolved. We evolved in these hunter-gatherer bands where everybody took care of the kids. Right. And I think, you know, we can replicate that in our lives. You can get together with your friends and buy some property and take care of each other's kids. Take care of each other as you get older. Share resources. We don't need to have two cars for every family. We don't need to live in this fragmented way. More people live alone right now than have ever lived alone in the history of our species. It's about 25% in America. That's devastating. And it's not economically feasible. And the only beneficiaries of this fragmented approach to life are corporations, not people. You say or suggest over and over that we're living out of tune with our nature, just as we've been talking about. So what, like, what is that nature? What is Homo sapiens' purpose? And what mode of living helps us achieve that? Well, I think the first principle is that pursuit of happiness is not really the point. It's pursuit of meaning. I think Viktor Frankl wrote about that in Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is an amazing book. Happiness isn't the point. It's whether you feel meaningful or not. The number one most important indicator of health and longevity, so the, the factor that will have the greatest effect on how long you live, is not what your diet is, it's not what your weight is, not how much you exercise, it's not whether you smoke or not, it's not whether you drink or not, it's whether or not you feel embedded in a community of people who love you. Right. That is the number one indicator, the number one predictor of when you'll die. That's indisputable, and it's so indicative of how out of sync we are. Right. So I think that our nature is, as I touched on earlier, we're deeply social species. So it's important for us to feel that we're part of a social group where people know us, they appreciate us, they take care of us, and we return that and take care of other people. And the problem is we're in such a scale 
that, you know, a Facebook friend is not a friend. A friend is someone, you know something about their lives, you see them, you sit down with them, you hold them, you touch them. By fragmenting these things and creating these abstractions and these sort of cheap copies of real human relationships, it's junk food. It's it's psychological junk food. It's not nourishing us. It's making us sick, which is why depression and suicide and anxiety are so high among young people today, higher than ever before. There's a section in the book, and, and you know maybe we can sort of move toward a hopeful note as we approach the end of this. There's a section in, in Civilized to Death where I talk about disaster sociology. And this is how people behave in disasters, tsunamis and earthquakes and wars and whatever disaster it is that wipes out the civilization, wipes out the state. So the cops aren't there to help you. Nobody's there to help you. What do people do? Do they rape and pillage, right? Which is what Pinker and, and uh, Dawkins and the other Neo-Hobbesians would predict. No, they help each other. Right. That's what we do. That's our nature as a species. We're essentially cooperative, giving, kind, compassionate animal. And I go through lots of evidence for this in Civilized to Death. The man who started the, the discipline of disaster sociology at the end of his career said that in all the years that he'd studied human behavior and disaster, what he'd learned was that people who survived the disaster look back at that time as the best time of their lives. Yeah, because I mean, there's such crazy endorphins and, you know, brain feelies going on when that's happening. We feel alive in ways that we don't feel alive in the most luxurious of times. Of course. And what else is happening? You're helping people. Right. People are helping you. There's a sense of community and there's a sense of meaning. You matter. What you do matters. Right. I have a friend who's a that's, Navy student. That, that's huge. I mean, I think that's what's yeah. missing is like we all work toward making tons of money in things that don't feel essential to us as human beings, right? It's like, well, I made a million dollars last year. Who gives a shit? What did you accomplish? I mean, I think that's where people people call me and say, you know, you've got this podcast. Tell me how I can feel happier doing what I'm doing. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, I bailed on my job <laughs> to chase the dream of stand-up comedy. I can't tell you I'm perfectly happy, but I'm trying to live purposefully, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, if, if someone's stuck in a job, they can't leave for some reason, which I would really question whether that's the case. But if it is the way you can make yourself happy is to help other people. Right. That's something that always works. So, okay, you're making a lot of money and you need to stay there because of X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, take 15 or 20% of that money and spread it around. Mm -hmm. That'll make you feel better. And it'll give you a sense of meaning because by doing that, you're increasing the quality of life for other people. And getting back to the van trip and all that, that feels as if it's a sacrifice, but in fact, it isn't. It's actually, because of the way human psychology is designed, it's actually uh, going to increase your own fulfillment. Okay, I cut you off. You were going to tell me a story about a Navy SEAL. Oh, yeah. I, just, I was having dinner with him a couple of nights ago, and He's a really thoughtful, interesting guy. And, you know, we were talking about how he's still, he's in the reserves. He still gets called out on deployments and stuff. And I said, why? Why do you keep signing on again? Like, what's the point? You're risking your life. You're, you know, going to these 
parts of the world where you know he's he's a smart guy too he's not naive he understands the futility of a lot of the things he's being asked to to do and he just said i love it i'm part of a team i don't want to not be part of the team anymore sebastian junger writes about this in in uh, his Tribes. book tribe yeah that the importance of feeling that you're contributing and you're taking care of people who are taking care of you that sort of trumps every other consideration to the point where people will put themselves in harm's way and, you know, shoot strangers. I remember an interview with him. I think Bill Maher was interviewing Junger and he said, why are these guys doing this? Why do they, why do they risk their lives? And Junger said, they do it for love. (laughs) The toughest, meanest bastards in the world are out there killing because they love each other. And uh, it's just heartbreaking when you think of how we co-opt these very decent, kind, generous impulses and uh, convince people to do things against their own interests. Okay, I'm now looking at the timer and realizing I said we could do this in 45 minutes, but we haven't talked about rich asshole syndrome. Do you have a few more we can get into that? All right, so let's talk about rich asshole syndrome. I would like to state for the record that I was an asshole long before I was rich. So <laughs> thus proving the theory that not all assholes are rich. If only that, that doesn't mean that all rich people aren't assholes. Well, maybe you were just an amateur. I was working. I was aspiring. Yeah. Can you briefly explain rich asshole syndrome and how we got here? Sure. There's a line from Henry David Thoreau in Walden, I think, where he says, a man's wealth is best measured by the things he can do without. I love that. I love that line. And it's such a hunter-gatherer approach too. You know, I don't need anything because I know where to find and, and make anything I need. That's a very, that's a kind of wealth that's within yourself and not something that you find outside and gather and store. When I was working on this book, I was thinking about uh, how the values of civilization sort of tell us to make as much money as we can and and how that seems to backfire so often. And I've worked with very wealthy people. I have friends who are very wealthy. I have friends who live on yachts and, um, you know, have helicopters. And I, I worked in commercial real estate in Midtown Manhattan for a few years in the 80s uh, in the Diamond District, no less. I've, I've been around a lot of wealthy people. And I have not seen that wealth correlates to happiness. In fact, I've seen quite the opposite. So I started getting into the research and looking at this. And and what I found was that it's true, above about $70,000 a year, there is no real strong correlation between wealth and happiness. Sometimes it indicates it goes up a little. Sometimes it indicates it goes down a little. Essentially, once you have the basics of life covered, the point of diminishing returns comes pretty quickly. And it, it can be very distracting from the things that actually will make you happy. You can start to question whether people really want to hang out with you because they like you or is it because they want something from you? You know, it's like too much beauty or too much fame. All these things are, are contaminants in high levels. So my point in looking at this and, and in writing that section was that, yes, there are sort of heartless people who might 
you know, psychopaths who might be better at getting rich because they're willing to do things that normal, decent people wouldn't do in order to get, you know, the line of behind every great fortune, there's a great crime, you know, that there's some truth to that. But it's also true that decent, normal people can find themselves with a lot of wealth suddenly because of some fluke or because they're very focused or because of a family connection or some historical tide changed at just the right time for them. And then they're faced with a situation where they sort of have to become assholes in order to occupy that position because it's very painful to be on either side of a great wealth differential. In other words, it's not... I used to live in a house full of fashion models, this mansion in Barcelona. Everybody was a fashion model except me. You have my attention. Yeah. And I actually, one of my jobs was I was a massage therapist. But what I found was, okay, these, these are fashion models. They're beautiful. They've got what everyone wants. Are they happier than normal people? No. In fact, a lot of them were miserable. And the same thing happens with wealth. So the differential is painful for people. And that's because there was no differential in our history, in our prehistory, in wealth. Everyone took care of each other. What we do with wealth is we separate ourselves from other people. We build a wall around our house. We get a bigger house. We get tinted glass. We get a limo. We sit in the back. We don't talk to anybody. We fly in a private plane. We don't meet the guy sitting next to us on the plane. We separate ourselves from any sort of inconvenience or any opportunity for serendipity to enter into our lives. If I may, I'll read. It's not wealth that makes people assholes. It's the distance created by wealth differentials that creates and causes that callousness. Yes. And I wrote about, in Civilized to Death, you know, I wanted to be very clear that I'm not accusing anyone of anything. What I'm trying to say is that it's unavoidable, and I have a lot of compassion for the wealthy, as well as the people you know, who are are suffering from too little wealth. The first time I went to India, I was a wealthy asshole. I had been making a bunch of money in New York City. I quit my job. I flew to New Delhi. I was sitting in a restaurant and some kids came up and were standing next to my table, which was like on a little terror, like a street level thing. They were just staring at my food. These little six or seven year old starving orphans living on the street were staring at my food. And what I felt was inconvenienced. I felt annoyed. And I was happy when the waiter came out and chewed them away as if they they were pigeons or something. But you have a choice and, to make. You can either, and you go on to say that when you do give them some money, you are further flocked by more people. So at a certain point, one must create the scars and callousness to operate in a world of inequality by definition. Or just give away everything until you're at the same point as they are. Is that an yeah. improper conclusion? Right. And and that's what Jesus did, right? I mean, there's a there's a socialist. Sort of- Jesus was just a no good socialist. Come on. <laughs> he was a hippie. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, Buddha did the same thing. You know, Buddha was born a prince. And the first time he was allowed out of the castle or whatever he was living in, and he went through the streets and he saw the suffering of people, it broke his heart. So he gave away everything and spent the rest of his life wandering penniless. Buddha was a deadbeat dad. I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah. So 
That was the point of the rich asshole syndrome thing. Of, of course, it's joking, and and it's it's. Uh, I'm trying to present the information in a way that you know will make people laugh, but also to understand that we're all victims of this. It's like, you know, I used to think that the whole wealth game was zero sum. That it was like playing poker at my buddy's house. If I if I leave with $20 less, someone else is leaving with $20 more, it all sort of evens out. But then I realized, no, the winners are losing. What kind of game is this when the people who win go home and shoot themselves or are addicted to drugs or have miserable marriages? Or I can't tell you how many people I've met who've made millions and they're, they're fucking miserable. So what kind of game is this? We're playing in a casino. We're not playing at someone's house. My loss isn't your gain. The house is winning all the time. And so what I was trying to do, is, which is the same thing I tried to do in, in Sex at Dawn, my first book, is to show that these conflicts are artificially created. We're being separated and uh, we're being divided and, and conquered by something outside us that isn't inherent in us. So the war between the sexes is bullshit. There is no war between the sexes. Our actual appetites and and nature are very convergent between men and women. And I would say that's the same thing with class in, in Civilized to Death, that there's no real difference between the wealthy and the poor in terms of what we want and what makes us happy, what works for us, what makes life meaningful. And we're all victims of a system that divides us, separates us, pits us against one another. Well, Chris, this has been a really interesting conversation and I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I don't know what it means to all of us, but it made me think and made me want to think of ways that I could uh, find more happiness by not buying into everything that we know about our current society and supposedly believe about our current society. The name of the book is Civilized to Death, What Was Lost on the Way to Modernity, by Christopher Ryan. Chris, where can they find you and find out more about your work? My website is thatchrisryan.com and everything's there, the, including my podcast, which is called Tangentially Speaking. And uh, the books are there and uh, yeah, it's all there. My TED Talk and everything else. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks, Paul. There you go. Christopher Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Christopher, for taking the time. Really enjoyed our conversation. I enjoyed the book. It's thought-provoking, y'all. What do you think? Is he a prophet? Is he a quackpot? Is a quackpot the same as a crackpot? I don't know. Is he a Terminator? I don't know. The ideas are worth considering. Aren't we all looking for something, some way of belonging to a tribe that really means something? I don't mean like, oh, I'm a Vikings fan. Yeah, I'm with my purple people leader fans. That doesn't mean, that's jack shit. That's, that's false tribalism. Oh, I'm a big fan of Taylor Swift. So what? Well, I love Diet Coke. We're the same kind of... Shut up! Everybody likes Diet Coke or not. It doesn't matter. It's like, oh, we have so much in common. We both like caffeine. You're addicted to the same drugs. That's not a bond. Anyway, I don't know. Check out Christopher's site, ChristopherRyanPhD.com and listen to his podcast. Maybe you'll just maybe hear me on that someday soon. Hey, if you like what we're doing here, be sure to rate and review this podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening to it on. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Thank you to my friend and producer and editor, Mike Carano. Mike, make me sound smart.